Well, good morning and welcome to Southwinds 2020. We're so glad that you are here as we are kicking off a brand new year. Uh, you know, a part of our conviction as a church, huge part of our, our vision, is the conviction that God really can change our lives. And so next week, we are going to be kicking off the first year of a brand new decade with this brand new series that we're calling The Power of Habits. And we want to let you know about that, and we want to encourage you to make sure you're here as we begin to study God's Word together in this regard. I'm very excited about this series because I really do believe it has some incredible uh, potential to help bring about lasting life change. I think we're all aware of kind of the phenomena of New Year's resolutions, right? We all make New Year's resolutions in January, and we've all forgotten about our resolutions by February most of the time. That's what the statistics say. And I think even more importantly, many of us find ourselves frustrated uh, with our growth as Christ followers. We, want, we wonder why we're not seeing more lasting spiritual change, more consistent growth. And, and I'm praying that God's going to use this series in some very definite ways uh, to help us find biblical wisdom about how our lives can truly change and stay changed as we develop uh, spiritual habits good habits, uh, but more importantly, godly habits that God will use to change our lives. This week, um, we are looking at a part of God's Word that I think will help us prepare for what's coming in the weeks ahead, what God's going to teach us next week. Uh, because really, the truth is to move into the future freely and start developing godly habits, that always will require us to have dealt with some stuff in our past. And so we, we need to move beyond regrets about our past. And as we, we gather this very first Sunday of this brand new year, uh, one of the things that I'm confident about as your pastor is that many of us are looking back at this last year with some regrets. It's just really part of living in a fallen, broken world uh, because all of us made choices last year, some large, some small, some wise, some unwise, thousands of choices last year. And each of those choices shaped us and marked us in different ways. And so I, I want to get us thinking about this whole matter by doing a real quick regret survey. Okay, just going to check things out for you. I want you to reflect back on 2019. Ask yourself if you made any decisions you regret. All right. Uh, during 2019, I'm going to give you some examples. Did you move at the wrong time or maybe date the wrong person or pick the wrong job or maybe hire the wrong person, yell at the wrong kid, uh, make some unwise choices about smartphone use, about shopping, about TV viewing, about money, uh, about food intake, especially during the holidays? In 2019... Did anyone here choose to talk when you should have remained silent or remain silent when you should have talked? Anyone here maybe wish that you had not waited so long to have kids or wish you'd waited longer to have kids or maybe you wish you had someone else's kids? I mean, anyone here last year enable someone's dysfunction or contribute to someone's codependency? I mean, how many of you right now would be willing to just raise your hand publicly and say that you have at least one regret from the last 365 days? If you just raise your hand real fast, I see those hands all across this room. <laughs> That's where we all are. Now, uh, how many of you would be willing to say you've already started your list for two, 2020? 
few of you here, okay. Well, the truth is we all know regret. We know what it feels like to wish that we could uh, do a decision or a day or maybe a month or even a year or even maybe a whole life, do it over again. And maybe we find ourselves wondering if that's even possible, if it's really truly possible to move beyond regret. This morning, I want you to see that God's plan is for you to be set free from the prison of regret. I want you to see that you will never experience the life that God has for you while you are trapped in regret. I want to start by by giving you a little picture of this. Um, One of the things that I like to do sometimes is play golf. And, you know, um, I don't do it that much. And the main reason probably is that I'm not very good at it. but, But I like doing it. And and part of this is I'm committed to sharing, you know, part of my life with people outside the church. I want to share my faith with irreligious, uh, foul-mouthed, conscience-seared, rule-bending, cheating people. And golf seems like a pretty good place to find people like that. And so I played some golf last year, and I have some deep regrets about that because it was not pretty. I'm a very bad golfer. And it's kind of an interesting thing. If you notice, golf looks really easy, right? The ball just lays there. It doesn't move around. It's just right there. All you have to do is hit it. Uh, I still remember this is many years ago. I've been here at Southwinds for almost 17 years, and this is back when I was pastoring in the Chicago area. Um, and I was with a group of some guys at our church, and I, I pulled out my driver, and I hit a drive. Unbelievable shank. I mean, it it went off at an angle that no one in the group thought was possible. We even wondered if it violated the laws of physics. And um, I really felt regret about that. I really wished that I could have had that one to do over again because at that moment there were these people two fairways over who were kind of yelling in our direction. They looked very angry. Uh, They were waving at us with missing a few fingers, it seemed like, when they were waving. And, you know, I started to walk towards my ball, the walk of shame, and, and then one of the guys that I was playing with said, don't even go there. You don't need to go get that ball. Let's just give you a mulligan. And I knew what a mulligan was. Some of you do too. Um, They said, we're not even going to write that down. You can just hit it again. It's like it never happened. It's like I was given this clean slate. Start again. You know, mulligan is kind of a grace note in what can be a very unforgiving game. And I started thinking about that later, started wondering, wouldn't it be amazing if we could take mulligans in other areas of life? You know, policeman stops you and gives you a ticket. Wouldn't it be great if you could just rip it up? Thanks, officer. I'll be taking my mulligan right now. And he says, have a good day. That would be amazing. Or maybe you get an overdraft notice from the bank, you know, you spent more money than you have once again and you just call the bank up and talk to your banker and says I'm taking my mulligan on this and the banker says no problem or maybe you buy a house and it doesn't turn out to be what you want the market drops or something like this you go back to the realtor and you say I want my money back and they say sure not an issue at all you forget to send in your taxes you call the IRS and you say I'm taking my mulligan this year and they say good for you That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Well, you know, the truth is, all of us need mulligans all the time. 
Because we all know what it's like to know regret in those moments when we've done something or said something horribly wrong. And as a pastor, I know that in a room this size, there's a lot of regret. A lot of regret. You know, in a room this size, there will be, in all likelihood, some who have been involved in some practices of deep fraud that have been going on for a long time, and you just live in fear of being discovered. In a room this size, there will be some who have been and even are now engaged in sexually immoral relationships or activities. In a room this size, there will be some who have inflicted cruelty or even abuse on other people, maybe on some people very, very close to you. There will be some engaged in corrupt financial practices which would shock the people close to you if they knew the way you were living. There will be some involved in some deeply sinful and highly destructive patterns of behavior. See, in a room this size, it's a foregone conclusion that a large number of us have failed. And our failure is significant, and we cannot dismiss it, and you cannot pretend that it never happened. And I want to tell you today, if this is you, what you do with God's word today will be a matter of life and death. Now, you can beat yourself up about your failure. You can carry your sin and your guilt around your neck, letting it weigh you down like a giant burden, or you can choose another way to live. We are looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians today. If you're not there yet, you'll want to get there. Chapter 7, it's verses 8 through 11. And, and while you're getting there, let me give you some background. Paul is writing to this church. It's in Corinth, and, and he's writing a, about a mess that's been there in the church. And we don't know exactly what it, it was. Paul doesn't say, but it was bad. It was significant enough that it was widespread and a lot of people knew about it. Paul had to write them a previous letter. That letter is what we know as 1 Corinthians. And it was a very painful letter for Paul to write. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul talks about having written this letter. And he says he wrote it out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears. And he had sent that letter off where he had brought them face to face with the bad choices that they had made. And then he had to wonder for a long time, how are they going to respond? Paul had to kind of hold his breath for the many months that it took the, the letter to get there, for them to respond to it, and then for word to get back. And then finally he gets the word back about how they had responded. And, and what we are about to read right now is Paul's response to the news from Corinth about how they had dealt with their sin and their guilt. Listen to what he writes, beginning in verse 8. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Paul is describing the Corinthians' response to their sin. 
and it raises this question for us, what do you do when you've made bad choices? And we see in these verses two different responses. And these responses are kind of highlighted most clearly in one verse, which is verse 10. I want to read that verse again. Listen carefully. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. In other words, there is a way to respond to our regrets where we can move beyond regret. But there's another way where we can respond and we can stay trapped and we can remain burdened by the past. Now that way is the first response that Paul speaks of and he calls it worldly sorrow. And Paul says, you can write this down, worldly sorrow leads to regret and death. And there really is a sense in which we can say there is a kind of sorrow that if you engage in it and live in it and stay in it, it will eventually kill you. I saw kind of an unforgettable example of this kind of sorrow uh, many years ago. It was in his classic, um, deeply theological 1975 movie called uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Some of you have seen it, I can tell. Uh, some people may not want to admit they, they ever watched Monty Python. I'm willing to admit it because I just did it for ministry purposes. I was researching for a message. And uh, you may remember in this one scene in the movie, there's this group of monks. They're passing through a town, and they're, they're chanting these prayers to God. And as they chant, they carry these wooden planks in their hands. And at the end of each line of their prayer, I want you to watch what they do. All right, that's Monty Python. And so you have these characters who are somehow attempting to deal with their guilt by whacking themselves on the head. They inflict pain on themselves. Now, this only happens, we, we know this, right? This only happens in a Monty Python movie. I mean, no one else ever would do anything like this, right? I mean, no one, no human being would ever go around day after day, maybe hour after hour, beating themselves up just to try to deal with their guilt, right? Well, we all know the sad truth is that people do it all the time. Sad truth is that throughout history, human beings have somehow followed this misguided notion that they could just inflict enough pain on themselves. Maybe that would take care of their, their guilt. Maybe they would feel less guilty. Maybe God would be a little less severe in judging them. We have lots of records of this from church history. For example, in earlier centuries, we have, we have records of people who, who would eat no cooked food. This happened for seven years in this attempt to inflict pain on themselves and do penance for their sin. We know of monks who exposed their bodies in these marshes to poisonous flies, living there, getting bitten all the time. There are monks who proudly kept a record of how many years it had been since they'd ever seen a woman. I think kind of the classic example in church history was this monk named 
uh, Simeon Stalites, who lived a few hundred years after the time of Christ. He lived in the uh, area we know today as Egypt, out in the desert. And this monk had a column built in the desert, 60 feet up in the air. And at the top of the column, there was a three-foot square platform with a little railing around it. And he lived on the top of this pillar on this platform for 30 years in an attempt to separate himself from the world, in an attempt to inflict pain on himself to deal with his guilt. He used a rope ladder to haul his food up and to haul down his waist. He tied himself to the pillar by a rope just to make sure he didn't fall off. And this rope became embedded in his flesh and that putrefied and eventually there were worms in his flesh. Simeon was known to pick up the worms that fell from his sores and put them back on the sores and say to them, eat what God has provided you, friend. This is the way he, he lived. This is the way he tried to deal with his guilt, inflict pain, make himself miserable. And again, we have all kinds of historical records of people who, who bound themselves with chains, people who mix their food with sand. There is this one man who spent more than five years suspended from shackles under his armpits, you know, just hanging there. Unless you, you think that all of this just happened in bygone days, early in the 20th century, there was a monk in Yugoslavia who forced himself to spend three days and three nights listening as fellow members of his monastic order took turns 24 hours a day dragging their fingernails across a chalkboard. That actually didn't happen. I just made that up. But <laughs> that would be bad, wouldn't it? That would be really, really bad. And Paul is just telling us there is a kind of worldly sorrow. Now, maybe the ultimate example of this in the Bible, we find a little earlier in the New Testament. And it's in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. And we're going to come back to 2 Corinthians. But I want you to see this kind of ultimate example of worldly sorrow. In these verses, Jesus has been betrayed. He's been handed over to the chief priests. He's going to be crucified very soon. And here's what Matthew writes. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Je Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. See, Judas finally sees with this blinding clarity this horrible thing he's done. He's sinned against God. He's sinned against his teacher. He's betrayed innocent blood. And his whole life now is just one enormous regret. And he wants to give the money back as if that would set things right. But it's too late. The deed is done. He cannot undo it. And so Judas decides there's only one thing left to do. And he does it. He cannot bear his regret, so he hangs himself. His regret consumes him. And you know there are some people, maybe even some of you, who spend their whole lives just consumed by regrets. Maybe some of you are there right now. Paul says worldly sorrow is slow death. There are three kinds of death that worldly sorrow leads to. I want you to write these down. First of all, worldly sorrow brings emotional death. 
It's emotional death because when you're wrapped up in this kind of sorrow, you push away other people. You, you push away joy. You push away hope. Regret is always there. It's this gray cloud. You kind of anesthetize your heart. Second, worldly sorrow brings relational death. Uh, relational death because you, you cannot be close to another person. I mean, who can be intimate with another human being who is focused on something that takes away life? But most importantly, thirdly, worldly sorrow brings spiritual death. It is death spiritually to who you are before God because you become just incapable of sitting in God's presence and listening to him and receiving love from him. You just torture yourself again and again, replaying the memory of your failures in your mind. You punish yourself by refusing to immerse your, yourself in life or ministry or serving other people or giving or even praying. You end up kind of living half a life, like half asleep. When worldly sorrow grips you, it always, always leads towards death. It's lethal. Now, when you think about this, an obvious question is, why do people choose worldly sorrow? I mean, why would anyone choose this? And I'll just tell you a nasty little secret, and you're not going to like it. It's one of those things that most of us don't want to hear. And here it is. It looks spiritual to beat yourself up. We say we hate it, but we still do it. And the truth is really this. There is a kind of perverse pride often lies behind worldly sorrow. As I've been a pastor for a number of years, I've talked to people, and people who beat themselves up are often filled with resentment. Underneath the guilt is, is often a significant level of anger, sometimes even rage. They're mad at other people, mad at the world. They're, they're mad at God for holding them to such high standards. They're mad at themselves for failing to live up to those high standards they imposed on themselves. And at the bottom of all of this, underneath worldly sorrow, is this perverse and angry pride. You wonder how I know this? Well, it's because I've been there. It's because I've played this game, too. It's because I have whacked myself upside the head a few times, just like you have. And the truth is, when we do this, it's because we realize to fall on our knees before the cross, to acknowledge that I have a sin problem that I cannot handle, I cannot deal with, to resolve that I will allow God to do whatever needs to be done to make me like his son. Well, that is a pride-shattering thing. And many of us, many times don't want to go there you see to fall truly on your knees before the cross you have to be broken and some of us are not willing to be broken just ask yourself today just think about this is this why i'm living trapped by regret do i need to confess some pride in my heart. One of the things that I will tell you about this is that I think this highlights uh, one of the reasons why hearing from God regularly by reading his word is so utterly crucial to spiritual health. You see, it's our natural way of thinking to assume that we somehow have to work this out. We have to earn our righteousness. God's word corrects that. God's word tells us we cannot earn our righteousness and that we only can receive God's righteousness through Christ's death on the cross for us. If you are not reading God's word 
reading God's word regularly, there's a really good chance you're going to forget that and you're going to revert to the natural state in which we have lived and been born. I want to encourage you with this, this reality right now. You know, a lot of times as a new year begins, we, we make new commitments. And this would be a great time uh, to make a new and fresh commitment to reading God's word. Uh, we do this quite often here at Southwinds. Encourage you to take opportunities to recommit yourself to the habit of reading God's word. Out in the lobby, if you want to pick one up, we have uh, copies of one sample plan that's very adaptable, can be used in a number of different ways that will take you through all of God's word in a certain period of time. Uh, most of you probably know that there are all kinds of places on the internet where you can find plans to read God's word. Hopefully, if you haven't discovered it already, there is an app called YouVersion, um, which is a Bible app, has hundreds of Bible versions, has thousands of reading plans. And right now, what I'm saying to you is I don't really care what plan you pick, just pick one and just get into God's word. Because if you're not, there's a good chance that you're going to find yourself living in this way. Paul says that we don't have to do that. Paul says there's another way. And, and actually in verse 10, as I pointed out earlier, Paul says that godly sorrow, well, it leads to repentance, salvation, and life. Now, maybe you remember the story back in the Gospel of Matthew that Judas was not the only follower of Jesus that wounded Jesus. Remember when Jesus predicted shortly before his death that all of his disciples would desert him? Do you remember which particular disciple boldly proclaimed that he would never do that? Who said, even if everyone else deserts you, Jesus, I'll never desert you. Anybody remember his name? It was Peter. Well, Matthew tells us in this passage about Peter's defining moment when it comes to this guilt issue. And we see it in verses uh, 69 uh, through 75, Matthew 26. And the context is, in, in these verses, uh, Peter has denied Jesus two times. And then someone confronts him a third time and says to him, surely you are one of his disciples. And we pick it up in verse 74. It says, then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And then Matthew tells us, immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Now there's the, the key phrase. And it may well be that Matthew is deliberately positioning these two stories almost back to back so that, that we can see this contrast between the path of worldly sorrow on the one hand and then this other path that Paul is talking about godly sorrow because Peter ends up choosing another way. We learn at the end of John's gospel, the 21st chapter, that Peter is in a boat with other disciples. They've been fishing and Jesus shows up on the shore of, of the Sea of Galilee and calls out to them. And when the disciples realize it's him, they start rowing the boat into shore. But maybe you remember that Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to get there as soon as he can. He's got this tremendous hunger to be restored to Jesus. And he, he runs to Jesus' side and in this wonderful way, he experiences grace. There's an interesting tradition about Peter. 
We don't know for sure if it's true or not, but it's a very old tradition, probably dates back to the first century. So there's a very good likelihood it's true. And here's the tradition. The tradition is that for the rest of Peter's life, whenever he would speak and preach, if someone in the crowd wanted to heckle him, they would crow like a rooster. Now, can you imagine being Peter and hearing that sound? And it was their way of saying, you're the one, Peter. You're the one who denied your Lord when he needed you most. You're the one who deserted him when he was dying for you. So here's the deal. To receive forgiveness from God. It takes a certain kind of ruthlessness about ourselves precisely because in our darkest places with our heaviest burdens, we know we never deserve forgiveness. But the only alternative is to say that Peter's sin or your sin or my sin is somehow stronger than Christ's death. And we cannot say that. I wonder when Peter heard that sound when someone heckled him, if he thought back about his old friend Judas and about those early hopeful days they had spent together and then about how all everything ended. I wonder if Peter reflected on that path of worldly sorrow and the place to which it had led Judas. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says there that there's another kind of sorrow, and he calls this godly sorrow. And this highlights for us this principle that God actually has a plan for sorrow. And you might want to write that down. Uh, sorrow itself is not inherently bad. It's dangerous. It can do damage to us if we're not careful. But it is possible to be sorrowful as God intended. Now, if you look at these verses, Paul lays out some characteristics of godly sorrow. I'll mention them for you. You can write them down. First, godly sorrow is only temporary. In verse 8, Paul says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. So in other words, Paul is, is communicating it's not God's will that you live in guilty sorrow day after day, month after month, year after year. If this is an ongoing chronic condition for you, it is not godly sorrow. See, the role of sorrow in your life is to bring to your attention your need for repentance, your need for forgiveness, to, to bring to your attention what needs to be addressed and repaired in your life. And when that happens, it's time to move on, to move beyond regret. One of the things I've discovered as I've uh, interacted with people over the years as a pastor is that for many of us, actually doing this, actually moving beyond regret requires some outside help. We can't always do it all by ourselves. And that is why being in a life group being in community is so important. Some of you have sorrow in your life. And the truth of the matter is you probably need some other people to come alongside you and give you counsel and give you encouragement, provide wisdom for you in order for you to work through it and move past it. And I have good news for you today. It's a new year. We're starting life groups. It's time to sign up. You can do it on your way out of this service in just a few moments. You can find a place to connect. And maybe that'll be part of God's working in your life to take you beyond regret. Second characteristic about godly sorrow is it's non-toxic. In verse 9, Paul says, 
uh, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. In other words, the, the quality of repentance is not a function of how much pain and, and guilt you inflict on yourself. And I want to say something right here because I think this is a very common thing. I know I wrestle with it in my own life, but I think a lot of times, a lot of us, when we realize we've sinned and we go to God and we ask for his forgiveness, we kind of have this feeling that we should feel bad for a while. You know what I'm talking about? I need to feel bad for a while before I can really be forgiven. And if I've done something really bad, I need to feel bad for a longer period of time. You guys know what I'm talking about right now because I know you've been there. Do do you realize how counter that is to the gospel of grace? Do you realize that when you feel that way, what you're really feeling is the urge in your own heart and life to justify yourself, to earn grace, to earn God's favor? The Bible says if you confess your sins, you know this verse, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's all you need to do. You don't need to feel bad to be forgiven. Grieve sin, yes, because it's destructive and it hurts the heart of God and it hurts other people. But don't feel bad to bring about forgiveness. We, we need to be, make sure that we are not trying to earn our repentance by inflicting pain on ourselves. And so, with that said, um, I just want to say this. If nothing else gets taken home today, if you don't hear anything, remember anything else, I want to make sure that as a body of believers, we are straight on this, that repentance is not about beating yourself up. And so I I just want to see if we can help drive this home. Uh, I want you to turn to the person next to you right now, and I want you to say to them, I give you permission to stop beating yourself up. Just go ahead and do that right now. Say it to each other. Some of you really need to hear this, okay? Now, this, of course, doesn't mean that you have permission to beat them up, okay? It's not like a two-way thing, all right? But we really need to come to a place where we understand this. And I want you to see that the fundamental way that you can distinguish between these two forms of sorrow is by looking at their consequences. And so I I think you're going to need to take this home. You're going to need to reflect on your life. If you want to know if you are experiencing godly sorrow or worldly sorrow, we'll look at the consequences. Let me point you again to verse 10. I want you to notice one word that's repeated. Paul says, godly sorrow brings, you know, I underline, circle that, brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, here it is again, brings death. Okay, so godly sorrow is non-toxic. And then finally, godly sorrow brings an explosion of life. See, it's the opposite of worldly sorrow. And it produces the opposite of death, which is salvation. And another word for that is life. And I get this from verse 11. I mean, if you read this, you just see this explosion of life happening in Corinth. Here's how Paul describes it. Just listen to the words. See, he says, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what 
eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. These people, they, they just explode with this power to live God's kind of life. They're not discouraged. They're not weighed down. They're clearly taking their sins seriously. They're not glossing it over. Notice the word that the words Paul uses, earnestness, eagerness, indignation, alarm, longing, concern, readiness. You see, the way that you know that you're experiencing godly sorrow is it leads always to repentance, real repentance, which leads to life, which leads to salvation, which ultimately leads to joy and freedom. But you have to choose. You really do have to choose. Uh, there's a saying that we've all used. We're all very familiar with it. It's kind of become a cliche. And it goes like this. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. We all know that. And it's true. It's always true. But I heard something uh, that I would like to add to that statement. And I think it'll help you. Uh, if you'll really take it to heart, to move beyond regret. And it goes like this. Today is the last day of the life you've lived so far. See, when it comes to regrets, you have a choice. You can live in the past, chewing and re-chewing and re-chewing every bad thing you've done. You can beat yourself up. You can choose to continue to live in a kind of perverse pride that somehow thinks that it's up to you to pay for all your sins. And some of you are doing this right now. Some of you are living this way right now. You can do this. Or you can choose godly sorrow. You can freely, fully admit what you've done. You can confess it to your Father who loves you. You can receive his forgiveness, which is free. You can trust that he's going to keep his word to fully forgive you. And you can see today as the last day of the life that you've lived so far. And only then, really honestly, will you be able to truly see today as the first day of the rest of your life. See, it's possible. It really is possible for each one of us to move into 2020 with freedom, life, with joy. That's the way I want to live, and I hope that's the way you want to live. And God's word tells us how.